father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious? to What's Lightsaber's Precious, the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Encyclopedia podcast for your waste time and fictional wikis. I'm Ryan. And I'm watching my cat lick its nipples. Don't tell the audience that. He's literally like, as you listen to this, well, as we record this, he's four feet away just licking all his nips. I hope you can't hear it. I feel like that would really like, like, just spoil the whole episode if there were cat nipple licking sounds in it. I hope you can hear it, you filthy animals. <laughs> Gross. Anyway, I don't have any Lord of the Rings news today, and you don't have any Star Wars news, because the one thing you were going to do made me so mad, I almost couldn't record this episode. Yeah, I was reading to her some of the Star Wars fan manifesto. I hate it. It's so Kathleen stupid, Kennedy. I hate it. We posted it on our Facebook, but you haven't read it. It is the most cringeworthy document written by humans. So, I'm not going to read it, because I don't want you cringing so hard you die. Ryan had to cheer me up again by reading me some more comments from that, that Jar Jar Binks message board. Yeah. That elevated me, again, to the mood, the place, the, like, the headspace I need to be in to record this. Yep, so we're back after Rachel's rescue. What are we doing today, Joanna? Today, as promised, I'm going to be delving into Return of the Shadow, which confusingly is The History of Middle-Earth, Volume 6, by Christopher Tolkien, also The History of the Lord of the Rings, Part 1, also by J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, am I going to be confused because I wasn't around for the first time The Shadow showed up? No, you're not going to be that confused, actually. The, sh- the shadow, I'm assuming, is, is Sauron. Um, and oh. you, you know what happened the first time it showed up. There was werewolves. I thought it was like the 1930s radio character. No. No, it's not the 1930s. That's a kind of a deep cut. No, they made a movie with like uh, one of the Baldwins as him in the 90s. Wait, was that the one where... Are you thinking of Billy Zane, probably? I'm probably thinking of Billy. What am I not thinking of Billy Zane? Or he uh, the poster. He was the Phantom. Okay. And okay. he had the purple jumpsuit, and yes. the poster said, Smash Evil, I think it said. Okay, it was like very, very similar, though. Yeah. I actually think I was thinking of the spirit. Oh, we saw the spirit, yeah. We did see the spirit. The spirit, the shadow, the phantom, they're all the same guy. Yeah. Well, pretty much the same. One wears purple, two of them were black, but they all kind of do the same thing. Yeah. What is purple but the new black? Yeah. So in this, this hefty tome that I hold in my hand, mm-hmm. Christopher Tolkien sort of... Uh, reproduces and collates and comments upon all of his father's rough drafts when he was trying to write the Lord of the Rings. Nice. There were four successive versions of the first chapter alone, written in 1937 and 1938, alone. Alone. So this gets kind of complex. By the way, 1937 was the year The Hobbit was published. So it's interesting that Tolkien started writing the as he called it at the time, sequel, right away. But The Fellowship of the Ring wasn't published until 1954. That's a big gap. Took him a while. Took him a little while. And part of the reason is that he was somewhat distracted. So in 1937, Tolkien wrote to his publisher, Stanley Unwin, the Hobbit sequel is still where it was, and I have only the vaguest notion of how to proceed. Not ever intending any sequel, I fear I squandered all my favorite motifs and characters on the original Hobbit. I just keep writing poems for this Tom Bombadil fellow. <laughs> he just, well, that was only part of it, but yeah, no. I can't help he, myself. It's the only thing I could come up with. He thought that he, he'd already said everything he had to say with the first Hobbit. He had nothing more left in him. Nothing. Two decades later, he released approximately a thousand pages of something that was not nothing. Yeah. I think we can all agree. Significant. 
Uh, Another thing he wrote to his publisher, Stanley Unwin, I am sure you will sympathize when I say that the construction of elaborate and consistent mythology and two languages rather occupies the mind, and the Silmarils are in my heart. And this was sent to the publisher not long after Tolkien had sent him the third unfinished draft of the Silmarillion. Keep in mind, the Silmarillion would not be published until 1977. So this third draft was sent to the publisher 40 years before the thing actually came out. Wow. Yes. And the Silmarillion was actually begun by Tolkien even before The Hobbit. So that gives you a little bit of a chronology there. How? When did Tolkien die? He died in 1973. Oh, so it's published... uh, Posthumously. By Christopher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, everything since then that's come out, and a lot of stuff has come out, has been posthumous by Christopher Tolkien. Gotcha. Tolkien was a little distracted, and maybe that's why it took him ages to get past this first chapter. So, let's talk about the four different versions and how the beginning of the story evolved, because a lot of the earliest bits actually did make it into the eventual published book. But you will see some major bits did not. So, the very, very, very first version, written in 1937... Bilbo is having a party to celebrate his 70th birthday, not his 111st. Much younger, so this is only 20 years after the events of The Hobbit. And he's inviting the Bagginses and Tooks, of course, as well as the Grubs, the Burroughses, the Boffinses, the Chubbses, the Proud Feet, which are all names that made it into the published book. All right, nice. Bilbo has his party. Gandalf's not there, not involved in any way. And, of course, Frodo isn't there because Frodo had not been invented yet. Oh, it's going to be a Bilbo story. Yeah, sort of. It starts out as sort of a Bilbo story. So Bilbo's speech is really, really similar to the published version, where he says, you know, I I don't know half of you as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Right. And then he says, I'm going away now, goodbye. Yeah. Except in this one, he ends it with, goodbye, I'm going away after dinner, also I am going to get married. He's much more specific. Yeah, he's really specific. He lays it all out. Hey, and also... He's getting married. He's getting married, so this starts with a Bilbo wedding. Now, Bilbo was always kind of a confirmed bachelor wasn't he just yeah yeah more or less he never seemed the marrying type and later in the chapter in fact Tolkien clarifies that Bilbo wasn't actually engaged when he said this he was just like kicking the idea around oh okay Uh, and actually everybody believed him because it was a hobbit custom to get engaged and not tell anyone about it for years and years and then one day suddenly get married and disappear with your spouse for a couple weeks I like that this was like a hobbit thing that they did it's a good tradition right but from this chapter that means it's not entirely clear of Tolkien actually actually intended to give Bilbo a wife or not, although he does say, I'm going to tell you a story about one of Bilbo's descendants. So that would imply... That he got married, unless this descendant was born out of wedlock. Right. Or adopted. Also, there is a lengthy description in this first draft of which of his possessions Bilbo gave to each of his friends and relatives. So the Sackville Bagginses are mentioned, as is Lobelia's tendency to steal Bilbo's silverware. Perfect. Though she's called Amalda in the first draft, and mm. Otho is called Sago. And Bilbo also gives back end to the Sackville Bagginses, because there's no Frodo. But it's mentioned that he doesn't give anyone any money because he spent all of it on the party and is now completely destitute. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and that's the first version. That's, that's a essentially twist. where it ends. What a twist. What a twist. So that's the first version. It's interesting. Yeah. The second version of this chapter is rather similar to the first, but this time Gandalf is there as are his fireworks, and we get a lot more details on just how big this party is going to be. Also, this is the first mention of Bilbo and Frodo, though Frodo wasn't around yet, their Mm. birth date of September 22nd. Oh, okay. And this time, instead of Bilbo's 70th birthday, it's his 71st birthday. Just, you know, bumping up a little bit. Tweak it, tweak it. And also that changes to his 72nd birthday halfway through. Oh. Tolkien apparently changed his mind as he was writing Maybe that's how he marked the versions of it. The first one was version, like... 
7.0. This is 7.1. I actually don't think he marked it. 7.2 is kind of halfway between. The impression I get is that Christopher went through all of these and he could see which bits were derived from which earlier parts and just sort of elaborated on. And a lot of this is probably Christopher's best guess. Although, as Tolkien banged out these drafts, he did send them to Alan and Unwin to, like, mm-hmm. take a look at. And he had Stanley Unwin's son read a couple and critique. His son was, like, 10 at the time. Oh, gosh, okay. So we have kind of a record of that. All right. That's like one way that we know. There's lots of description of Gandalf's fireworks, ending with the big scary dragon one that makes all the hobbits drop to the ground in terror. So that's all the same already. All right. Like almost 20 years before the book was published. Bilbo's speech still largely the same. It specifies that he invites exactly 144 of his guests into the dinner tent to hear it. That's a, that's a gross. Yes, that is a gross. A gross of hobbits. And partway through, Tolkien evidently decided that Bilbo did this. Because 144 was the age of his father, who happened to share Bilbo's birthday. Um, so essentially, okay. Tolkien was just like, a gross of hobbits. I like that. And then he's like, but what if there was a reason for it? I will it? think out everything. Yes, everything has to have a reason. Like, as we go through this, you'll see that a lot of this is stuff that Tolkien put in, and then it only became significant later. Hmm, okay. It's, it's kind of interesting. So then Bilbo says he's celebrating both their birthdays, which doesn't make sense because Bungo Baggins has been gone for a really long time. It's a memorial type thing. Maybe, but also Bilbo describes Bungo as his quote-unquote gallant father, and Bungo was not that. He was like a fat, stodgy little hobbit of all fat, stodgy little hobbits. You know, he's just trying to big up his dad. Well, the actual reason behind this is that partway through this draft, Tolkien decided that the story wasn't about Bilbo anymore, but about his son, Bingo. So it was actually Bingo who was talking. Bingo Baggins? Yes. But he didn't bother to go back and change the rest of the chapter to make it consistent. Okay. So, like, suddenly Bilbo just changes into Bingo, and Tolkien doesn't really, like, specify. So it's Bingo talking about his daddy, Bilbo. Yes. He's a gallant. Instead of Bilbo talking about Bungo. Whoa. Yes. So this is the kind of thing that's always made Tolkien's drafts a real nightmare to trace and decipher. He just does this, and then he doesn't bother going back to change it. Well, it's a draft. It probably made sense to him at the time. And that was all that mattered, I guess. One interesting note before we move on to the third iteration of this chapter, there was a bit that Tolkien crossed out about how Bilbo's parents died in a boating accident. And Tolkien apparently realized this didn't fit with the chronology, but he later gave the same backstory to Frodo. There you go. So that came back. So the third version. The third version, we are firmly talking about Bilbo's son, Bingo. Bingo. Bingo was born after Bilbo got married at a rather scandalously late age. And unlike Frodo, whose parents drown, Bingo's parents just kind of F off somewhere when Bingo's 39. And everyone's like, hey, Bingo, where'd your parents go? And Bingo's like, lol, who knows? And winks at them. (laughs) Bingo. And then he presumably finds a private place to sob softly because his parents just abandon him. Bilbo is 11-1 when he and Bingo's mother disappear. So that age is already cropping up just in a slightly different context. Okay. And Bingo's mother is Pramula Brandybook, which... Which is Frodo's mother in the published version of the book. Okay. So Pramula Brandy. she's gone. Where'd she go? In this version, she and Bilbo just left. They just went somewhere. There was a hobbit, had no parents. Bingo Bingo was his name. (laughs) (laughs) So he sang to himself very quietly when everyone else was out of earshot. We get... In this version, the first mention of Gaffer Gamgee, Sam's father. Ooh, Gaffer. But no mention of Sam yet. So Sam's father appeared before Sam did. Interesting. We also get the first mention of Bagshot Row, where the Gamgees live. And then we get the first mention of Mary Brandybuck, 
but he was called Marmaduke Brandybuck at this point. Oh, Marmaduke. Marmaduke. So he was a, a rascally Great Dane. Yeah. And it is stated that Bingo gives Marmaduke all his wines when he leaves the Shire after the long-expected party. So apparently Marmaduke is an alcoholic and everybody acknowledges that. Dogs love wine. Yes. Again, it's mentioned that Bingo is totally penniless at the time he leaves the Shire, which, by the way, is sometimes called, quote, the Shire and sometimes, quote, that Shire. Implying there's more than one. Oh, interesting. So Tolkien wasn't clear on that point. Uh, interesting that the land of the hobbits was never once called the Shire in the Hobbit. I was going to say, yeah, I was going Lord of the Rings invention. One more. This is like almost irrelevant, but it's truly bizarre. So I have to mention it. An outside biographer of Tolkien, right? So not Christopher, another yeah. biographer, claims that the name Bingo came from a family of stuffed koalas that Tolkien's kids had, who were called the Bingo family. That's cute. Cute, except Christopher Tolkien says that this is a very strange derivation for the name because apparently he and his sister portrayed the leader of the stuffed bingo family as, quote, a demonic character composed of monomaniac religious despotism and a lust for destruction through high explosive. Messed up kids. So I don't know what the hell kind of games Tolkien's kids were playing with their stuffed koalas. Man, they got real profound with that, didn't they? I know. I know. Religious, monomaniac religious despotism. Would you know what any of those words meant as a child? Stuffed koalas? Oh, surely not. And I'm sure Christopher didn't either, I hope. My gosh. That's pretty heavy. Anyway, that brings us to the fourth version. The most important aspect of this is that Bilbo's marriage is dropped entirely. And Bingo's no longer his son. He becomes his adopted heir and nephew... Actually, first cousin once removed. Okay. So here Tolkien establishes the general relationship between Bilbo and Frodo that would later show up in the published book. Okay. By the way, once he gets adopted, Bingo's name is Bingo Bulger Baggins, which is a bit much. Bingo Bulger Baggins. I like it. Otherwise, this version is very similar to the previous one. There's a few incidental things, though. For example, Tolkien mentions that the ring is Bingo's uncle's parting gift when he leaves the Shire. Did you notice how little role the ring played in the previous three Yeah, I noticed it wasn't even mentioned. Right. I mean, it was, but, like, very incidentally. And then, also, Gaffer Gamgee reveals that he likes Bingo because Bingo calls him Mr. Gamgee and talks to him about potatoes. They have lots in common. Yeah, so it's good to know the Gamgee's love of potatoes is genetic. They're spud buds. They're spud buds. Actually, it says that after Bingo leaves, he, um, he bequeaths... Gaffer Gamgee, a half ton of potatoes. I mean, that's a lot of a taters. A literal half ton. There's no way he's going to eat all those before they go bad. That's a ton of like, taters. Like, no way in hell. But anyway, yeah, Gaffer Gamgee loves his taters. All right, Tolkien also includes a few scattered notes that Tolkien wrote to himself around this time. So he wrote, uh, quote, Bingo goes off with three Took nephews, Odo, Frodo, and Drogo. It should be noted that Frodo Took is no relation to the Frodo Baggins that would become the protagonist of the published book. Okay. He just would reuse names for different characters, like, all the time, which is another thing that makes it super confusing. All right, all right. Tolkien also scrawled, make return of ring a motive. So basically, his initial concept was Bingo and his friends are traveling to give the ring back to Bilbo. Oh, okay. Right? I thought I meant back to Gollum for a second. <laughs> that would be, aw, wouldn't that be, like, good-hearted That'd of be a good adventure, right? Like, yeah, I know that my, my adoptive father stole this from me, like, seven years ago. We just thought it would be a touching gesture to give it back. You know, giving, giving you know? back. Yeah. Making right what was this wrong. No, the actual reason they wanted to give the ring back is a little fuzzy. Tolkien sort of implies that the ring causes something like dragon sickness. Okay. Or perhaps just the insatiable desire to be close to dragons. And this gets passed to Bingo when he inherits the ring, maybe? It's, like, really unclear. 
Huh. Uh, another note Tolkien wrote himself asks Elrond what he can do to heal his money wish and unsettlement. Elrond tells him of an island. Britain? Question mark? Far west where the elves still reign. Hmm. So if you want to cure dragon sickness, you have to go to Britain and or Valinor, apparently. Yeah, in the West. In the West. England. I mean, a lot of people want to think that, you know, Middle Earth is supposed to be the general equivalent of England, but apparently it was Valinor at some point. Wow. Gandalf mentions that you either have to, quote, lose the ring or, quote, lose yourself. Um, other notes that he wrote to himself also mentioned Tom Bombadil, the Barrow Whites, and the Willow Man, a.k.a. Old Man Willow. And then finally, in a note to Stanley Unwin in March 1938, Tolkien wrote, The sequel to The Hobbit has now progressed as far as the end of the third chapter. But stories tend to get out of hand, and this has taken an unpremeditated turn. Christopher Tolkien thinks that turn was the sudden appearance of the Black Riders. Uh-huh, okay. Which turned it into a significantly darker story. You'll notice that as I went through those iterations of the first chapter, it's still pretty light. Sounds like a cute sequel to it's The Hobbit. It's cute, it's comedic, it's sort of frothy. But uh, once the Black Riders showed up, it became a very different animal. So we'll go over the original. This is the second chapter that Tolkien wrote, but it didn't end up being chapter two in the finished book, right? It got moved. But And there's not as much to say about this second chapter as there was about chapter one, because an astonishing proportion of it's actually really close to the published book. Okay. The main differences are... Bingo is traveling with two companions, Odo Took, who more or less becomes Pippin, and Frodo Took, who more or less, well, not more or less, sort of becomes Sam, albeit with some major tweaks since Frodo Took is upper class and Sam is not. Mm -hmm. And they're planning on picking up Marmaduke Brandybuck, who more or less becomes Merry on their way out of the Shire. So that's their sort of group initially. Okay. And then in this first draft, a mysterious horseman shows up. Accompanied by mysterious sniffing sounds. (laughs) And it turns out to be Gandalf. Oh. Actually. So in the second draft, Tolkien turned Gandalf into a Nazgul with, like, shockingly literal alteration. He basically made Gandalf's white horse black and his gray cloak also black. And, like, bingo bango, you had a Nazgul. Otherwise, he, like, kept the writing pretty much the same. Okay. He even kept the sniffing, as you know, because I've told you before how much I love the Hobbit's obsession with the Nazgul sniffing. Yeah. They're constantly talking about how the Nazgul sniff. (laughs) So, uh, the third major difference is that Bingo seems more or less unaware of the ring's significance or connection to the Black Riders, and it doesn't seem like Gandalf has told him jack anything. So, in fact, the first of the Hobbit's three encounters with the Nazgul on the road out of the Shire... Bingo's first instinct is to put the ring on, and he actually does. Oh. Which, those of us who are familiar with the finished version of Lord of the Rings might recognize this as the stupidest idea ever. Yeah, Gandalf really didn't tell him anything, did right, he? Right, didn't tell him anything. Um, but in this early draft, it just turns him invisible, and the Nazgul can't see or smell him, and they just, like, sniff around a little bit and leave in confusion. Okay. By the end of the chapter, the second chapter that Tolkien wrote, Bingo and friends are camping with a group of elves led by an elf called Gildor, and this is actually in the published book it just didn't make it into the peter jackson movies in fact in the movies that frodo and sam briefly spot some elves but those elves are on their way out of valinor and sam's right. like oh that's sad and frodo's like eh, so anyway it's cool it's cool it's cool whatever but in the book they stay overnight with the elves and in this early draft bingo tells gildor that gandalf advised him to leave the shire no later than autumn so this implies that gandalf knew the nazgul were after bingo in the ring which means that Tolkien was starting to realize that Nazgul were after Bingo and the Ring. 
but the full significance isn't evident in these early drafts. And Bingo seems to say that he left the Shire mostly because he was broke and didn't want to do manual labor. So that might he, fall because it gets really cold in the winter. I mean, you can, you can winter in Florida. He's like fine. a snowbird. Yeah. He's a snowbird and he's also like a bourgeois lazy ass. Yes. So he's like, I hope I would maybe find some more treasure on the road because I don't want to do manual labor. Of course not. It's essentially his reason for leaving the Shire. <laughs> One last bit, and then I'll turn it over to you. At some point, Tolkien wrote a scrap... This was the third chapter he started on, but it would later become the published chapter two, which is the shadow of the past in the published version. Okay. And in this scrap, Bingo tells Gildor that Gandalf, quote, warned Bilbo a long time ago about the ring, of course. Don't use it too much, he used to say, and only use it for proper purposes. I mean, do not use it except for jest or for escaping danger and annoyance. Don't use it for harm or for finding out other people's secrets, and of course not for theft or worse things, because it may get the better of you. Bingo says, I did not understand. I seldom saw Gandalf after Bilbo went away, but about a year ago he came one night and I told him of the plan I was beginning to make for leaving Bag End. What about the ring, he asked. Are you being careful? Do be careful, otherwise you will be overcome by it. Ooh, ominous. So, with this random bit of exposition, Tolkien seems to have finally decided what the ring is. He then has the elf Gildor explain that he thinks the, quote, Lord of the Ring, first time that term is used, Mm -hmm. is looking for Bingo, and that if the ring overcomes Bingo, he'll turn invisible forever and become a ring wraith. This scrap also marks the very first time Tolkien ever wrote about the Dark Lord distributing rings among the peoples of Middle-earth. And then finally, Gildor also gives a brief backstory of Gollum, saying he's an ancient sort of hobbit and used to belong to a clever-handed little family before disappearing underground. Having gotten these facts straight, Tolkien once again went back and wrote what seems to be a sort of alternate opening chapter for the book, which involves Gandalf explaining all this. Kind of makes more sense. Yeah, it does. So he's explaining all this to Bingo at Bag End. This is pretty similar, but the most entertaining difference I found was when Bingo says it was a pity Bilbo didn't stab Gollum when he had the chance. Instead of saying, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand, Gandalf says, yeah, well, it was against the rules. (laughs) (laughs) So it had nothing to do with pity. Bilbo just couldn't violate the rules of the riddle game. Or as Gandalf says, quote, the ring would have had him at once. He might have been a wraith on the spot. So the ring takes riddles really freaking seriously. Yeah, it's really really strict. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, that's where we're gonna end with The Menace of the Ring fully described and Tolkien more or less figuring out what his book's gonna be about. No, I don't want to spoil anything, but is Bingo gonna stick around? Because I'm getting really attached to Bingo Baggins. I feel like he's gonna be a major character. Ooh, you know, I might try to forget about him if I were you. But I like him. I know you like him, and actually I do remember there's part in this book where Tolkien tried to write him out, and one of his sons was like, No, Daddy, I like Bingo. He's named after our demonic koala bear. <laughs> oh, bully! <laughs> so, but no, he, he, he might not be long for this world. Unless, I mean, if you're of the view that he directly became Frodo, because no, he no, more no, or no. less did. Just, just Bingo. Oh, you're only Bingo. Only Bingo. Bingo was his name. Oh, operative term was... So sorry, Ryan. (laughs) It's okay. But take us to the Star Wars side of things. You're right. So you delved into the kind of the history, the writing, the the genesis of the Lord of the Rings. Yes. And so for my half, I decided to go into the genesis, the beginning of the Star Wars. Ooh. 
you. Yeah. Was this as convoluted as the Lord of the Rings was? You know what? As you were talking, I realized there's a lot of similarities because George Lucas is also a guy who changes ideas a ton at the beginning. And Does he do it just in the middle of drafts and then not go back to make it consistent? Yes. And he would reuse names and locations and concepts quite often and kind of remix them and, and rebuild them. The same way you're going to be talking about Return of the Shadow the next couple episodes, I want to talk about kind of how Star Wars became Star Wars. Okay? Cool. So George Lucas. Yeah. You know, he was what born... What a guy. Yeah. What a guy. He grew up in the 50s. Spent a lot of time escaping into comic books and movies. That escapism stuff. He wasn't a very good student. He spent all of his money down at the drugstore buying comics and stuff. And he loved Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon. He'd go to the movies and see war films and westerns. Kind of filled his head with all these kind of fantastical ideas. Did he watch Kurosawa movies? Now it wasn't until college. In college he watched Kurosawa movies when he was in film school. He also started reading Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. He read Dune entirely. Okay. He read Joseph Campbell. All those ideas and interests would coalesce in 1977 into Star Wars. The same year The Silmarillion came out. Yeah, you're right. It is. But it wasn't easy. It, it, yes. yes. It wasn't <laughs> yes. an easy start, though. Okay, so we're going to go back a few years before 1977, back to 1973. Lucas is fresh off of making THX 1138, this kind of art house sci-fi movie. Right. And just put out American Graffiti, which is kind of a fun nostalgia movie about driving cars in the 50s. Well, it's fun unless you're like a Richie Cunningham fan, and then you're like, why is Richie being such a jerk in this? He really is a jerk I in that movie. I thought he was nice. He's mean in this. Yeah, Richie's kind of a jerk in that one. That was my reaction. Anyway, yeah. go on. So Lucas wanted to make, for his next movie, a throwback serial that kind of combined those two flavors of movie, kind of the sci-fi mixed with the nostalgia. Something, in his own words, that 10-year-old boys will love. Okay, so right there, straight from the horse's mouth, it's aimed at children. Yes, his whole idea was to make a new mythology, combine all these things together. And so he began to write something. And this first thing he wrote was a two-page synopsis in 1973 called <coughs> The Journals of the Wills, Part 1 and 2. Ooh, sounds so high epic. It is. I have the kind of a synopsis of it with some actual direct quotes from it. All right, let's and hear so it. I'll tell you and see if you notice any Star Wars in this. Okay. Okay. So this is the Journal of the Wills, part one. I am Chewie Two Thorpe of Kissel, my father's hand, Dardell Thorpe, chief pilot of the renowned galactic cruiser Tarmac. As a family, we were not rich except in honor, and valuing this above all mundane possessions, I chose the profession of my father rather than a more profitable career. I was 16, I believe, and pilot of the trawler Balmung, when my ambitions demanded I entered the Exalted Intersystems Academy to train as a potential Jedi Templar. It is there that I became Padawan learner to the grace Mace Windy, highest of all the Jedi Bendu masters, and at the time, warlord to the chairman of the Alliance of Independent Systems. Never shall I forget the occasion upon which I first set eyes upon Mace Windy. It was at the great feast of the Pleiabs. They were gathered all under one roof, the most powerful warriors in the galaxy, and although I realized my adoration of the master might easily influence my memory, when he entered the hall, these great and noble warlords fell silent. It was said that he was the most gifted and powerful man in the independent systems. Ooh. Those are the first two paragraphs. Okay, so we have Chewie. We have Chewie. We have uh, Jedi Templar. Yep, and Jedi Bendu. And Jedi, Jedi Bendu. We have uh, Padawan. Uh-huh. And we have Mace Windy. Mace Windy. <laughs> Which just sounds like someone's cute nickname for Mace Windy. Uh, Mace Windy. My little Mace Windy. Oh, give you a noogie. Yeah, this is all a handwritten outline. Okay. Uh, so not much of it is available online. It's just interesting how Mace Windu came back like 40 years later. Yeah, see, he reads his names constantly. You're going to see this as I read through some of these things in the future, like 
He just has the same list of names he draws on all the time. Right. The story continues on that page. Wendy becomes the victim of a court conspiracy. Oh, so already he loved weapon of choice political treason. Yeah. They fear that he's more powerful, like the court kind of decides he's more powerful than even the imperial leader of the Galactic Empire, whose name is Emperor Ford Xerxes XII. Xerxes? Ford Xerxes Ford the 12th. Xerxes. I feel like you combined the uh, historical figure Xerxes with, like, Ford Prefect. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Some of the court arranged for his replacement and expulsion from the royal forces. Though Windy has been dismissed, Chewie begs to stay on in his service as his Padawan. Okay. So the central conflict begins when a border system of the planet Aquile, that is, a puppet state of the Empire, invaded and seized planetary territory that rightfully belonged to Aquile. Windy and Thorpe are ordered by the Alliance chairman to protect Aquile and expel the armies of the border system. Okay. So, here's one thing I want to say. Yes. Everybody likes to act like George Lucas suddenly got obsessed with, like, overly complicated political maneuverings oh. with the prequels. No. That was his bread and butter from the beginning. Yes. You can see from this very first synopsis, this two-page nonsense, he's stuck on this Like, stuff he's already. throwing a lot of nonsense words at us also. He's a very political young man. I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Aquile, whose human inhabitants are called Biebers. <laughs> Bebers? B-E-B-E-R-S? But, but, but were they called, but were they believers? They were, they were Bieber's believers. They were ruled by a believer king, Lord Anakin Starkiller. Ah. His heir, Prince Luke Skywalker, must oh. be protected. Hey, so Skywalker came up that early? Yeah. Wow. The conflict requires the Jedi and the Bieber leaders to ally themselves with the downtrodden Hubble people of the planet led by Han Solo. Hi! What the hell? All these names were around even before the characters were. Much different roles. Also Bieber's in it. So, Biebers. you know, that's different. And so that leads into a more fragmentary story of the Journal of Wills Part 2. And here's what Chewie says in this part. It was four years later that our greatest adventure began. We were guardians of a shipment of fusion portables to Yavin when we were summoned to the desolate second planet of Yoshiro by a mysterious courier from the chairman of the Alliance. And then it ends. That's it? That's it. That's the whole second draft. <laughs> that's part two. Oh, that's part two. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's a two-part story. Not quite as robust as part one, but... No. So part one is pretty strongly influenced by Vietnam. Yeah, which okay. at the time was uh, still fresh in George Lucas's mind as a politically minded young man. Oh, so you have gosh. you have a peaceful planet, Aquile, mm -hmm. North Vietnam, being invaded by an aggressive border system, South Vietnam, which is supported by the might of the Galactic Empire, America. Oh, see, I was trying to get like more granular with it. I was trying to think of like a specific instance where all these things happened in Vietnam, but no, he he just meant like like pretty pretty this equals north vietnam this equals it's us pretty direct I okay think. okay yeah he was pretty he's trying to make it too complicated he was pretty political in his younger days i was days. like okay well, which part is the gulf of tonkin and yeah which is the tet offensive no it's not that complicated <laughs> now there's a quote there's a really good book that i got a lot of this information from called the secret history of star wars okay i will link it in the show notes it kind of talks about how george lucas went from this first weird draft into what star wars eventually became and all the weird steps along the way oh and yeah because it's like way I mean, like, the Tolkien stuff, yeah. as I was talking about it, a lot of it's not that different. Right. Right? Just the significance of it changes. Yes. But it's completely different with George Lucas. Right. And what you'll also find if you read that book is that George Lucas has a much different remembrance of how these events went. Oh. He's, on, he's on record of saying a lot that he had the entire, you know, six movies planned out from the start. But he didn't. I mean, he clearly didn't. He clearly he barely had a second chapter planned out. No, I mean, he had liked the idea of making one chunk of a serial that never got continued or had a beginning part. But that was never, like, he never had the rest of the episodes figured out. And he's really on, on record of saying, oh, it's about the, I 
came with the tragedy of Darth Vader and had to shorten it down into one movie, then three movies, and I can expand it out into six, but... Do you think he's being disingenuous, or do you think he just legitimately is misremembering? I think it's a little bit of both. I think he's trying to, like, make it seem a lot more simpler than it actually was. Okay. It's a really interesting book. I mean, I know it's just about Star Wars. It's not, like, any major literary thing you should be interested in, but I think it's cool. Yeah. But anyway, here's a quote from that book. Lucas took this summary to his agent, Jeff Berg, for an opinion. He took the whole chewy Thorpe thing to him. And Jeff is like, ah! Uh... And unsurprisingly... Jeff Berg was left utterly confounded at the incomprehensible story and recommended Lucas try something simpler. Yeah, I would make the same recommendation. So frustrated, Lucas began anew. I mean, I think it's one of those things where it made sense to him in his head because he's right. in his own head. Right. But to other people, like, they don't have any frame of reference for these weird like, words that What he's are you using. talking about? Jedi Templar, Mace Windy... Emperor Ford Xerxes the Twelfth. Like this is so much. Like Bieber's hey, Bieber's. <laughs> Justin Bieber hadn't even been invented yet. Yeah, Canada had not developed the technology to make Bieber yet. Yeah, so you know this is a much earlier, more innocent age. Nineteen seventy three. No, yeah, same year that Tolkien died. Interesting coincidence? coincidence. No, I'm pretty sure that he read Lucas's first draft and it killed him. I should say also that George Lucas did read Lord of the Rings and he liked the idea of having this Journal of the Wills be like a written narrative of like a history. Oh, so. So it's like there and back again. Exactly. Like the red book. Yes. You like that idea. Okay, okay. Cool. So I have some behind the scenes stuff before I move into my next section. Because even though this is like the most wacky crap ever, it actually has come up in some Star Wars Extended Universe stuff. Okay. And I will get to that in I a mean, second. I mean, it's come up in some non-Extended Universe stuff. Yeah. The names have, anyway. Yeah, I want to talk about some behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> so Lucas, here he's talking from the, from the annotated Star Wars screenplays book. Originally, I was trying to have the story be told by somebody else, an immortal being known as a Will. There was somebody who was watching this whole story and recording it, somebody probably wiser than the mortal players of the actual events. I eventually dropped this idea, and the concepts behind the Wills turned into the Force. But the Wills became part of this massive amount of notes, quotes, background information that I used for the scripts, and the stories were actually taken from the Journal of the Wills. Okay, alright. Yeah. So, does that mean that in-universe the Wills do exist and their journals do exist, they just aren't mentioned in the movie? Exactly. Oh, Here's okay. a Lucas again from J.W. Rinsler's Making of Star Wars book. The Journal of the Wills came from the fact that you will things to happen. Okay, yeah, I, I could have gotten that, but thank you. <laughs> the introduction was meant to emphasize that whatever story followed came from a book. Okay. So it's supposed to be the, like, these are adaptations of stories that were written down. Somewhere. I mean, I assumed, it's it's a pretty advanced technological society. I assumed that they had records. So. Right, right. When Lucas began to work on episode one, The Phantom Menace, he actually took out his original notes, the Journal of the Wills. Oh, yeah? Out of the Lucasfilm archives and reread them. And it sat at his desk as he wrote the first handwritten script for the first prequel. Okay, so here's here's what I would say, though. Yeah. So he was, like, very fresh out of film school at this point. Yes. He was, what, like... He was 26. 26. So mid-20s. I hate to make blanket statements like this, but very few things that you come up with in your 20s are actually good. Right. Like... I, obviously, I, I, I'm not middle-aged yet, but I'm sure when I am, I'm going to look back on stuff that I wrote when I was 26 and be like, Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, he was part of that, that group of young filmmakers. He probably thought he could do anything because, like, American Graffiti came out. It was a huge success. He was sure. 20, he made that movie at 26. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, he's I guess friend. he had reason to be confident in himself. I'm just saying, once he reached his 40s and 50s, he didn't look back on the stuff he made when he was 20 and think... Oh, this isn't as good as I thought it was at the time. Uh, maybe. That's the more normal experience, I think. It's kind of a nostalgia thing for him. Mm. Here's a fun fact, though, about film school. It's unrelated to any of this, but he was really good buds with Francis Ford Coppola. Okay. In film school. Yeah. And he was originally going to be the one who directed Apocalypse Now. What? Really? Yeah. 
That would have been such a different movie. Yeah. That would have been such a different movie. I would love to see how George Lucas would have dealt with Marlon Brando and his oh most, my gosh. like, yeah. intransigent and weird and bloated. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Because he got involved with the, the Journal of the Wills instead of doing Apocalypse Now. What a different legacy that would have been. But as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, we talked about George Lucas's plan was to make three more movies that were about the Wills. Remember that whole bit about make, talking about the Force and, like, the midichlorians inside oh, of us yeah. and everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, got, we actually did get a um, a listener comment on that. Yeah. That said, I, <laughs> I have to swear, but I would have stopped watching Star Wars if he put that shit in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe the wills would have come back into play big time, but that, that has gone to history. We will never know now. But let's talk about how it fits into the Legends continuity first. Okay. The wills. So the ancient order of the wills was a higher order of beings deeply connected with the Force and had holy men known as shamans. And so this is something that they've kind of written about. One of their shamans was known to have discovered the secret of eternal consciousness, and later, Qui-Gon Jinn learned the secret, allowing him to interact with the living after his death. This comes from a cutscene from episode 3, where Yoda talks to Obi-Wan about this. Oh, like Qui-Gon's unlocked the mysteries of the wills he has. Whoa! Yeah. So if I were to get, like, the special edition DVD, I could... I don't think they even filmed it. I think it was in the script, and it was also in the novelization. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, because novelizations are always... Almost always based on earlier drafts. Right, before the movie came out. That's wild. So the whole idea that Qui-Gon can, like, speak to Anakin after he's gone, and, like, how Yoda and Obi-Wan can become Force ghosts... Yeah. ...comes from Wills, baby. It comes from Wills? In the Legends continuity. Obviously, this wasn't in the actual movie, so... I saw they are just ghosts. Yeah, they might just be ghosts. They're just ghosts, Spirits. man. They're, just, they're, they're in the spirit world. So the Wills kept the collection of stories called the Journal of the Wills that chronicled the history of the entire galaxy. A keeper of the Wills was responsible for adding new information to it. One such keeper was told the story of the Skywalker family's exploits during the Clone Wars and the Galactic Civil War by the astromech droid R2-D2, 100 years after the Battle of Endor. Jeepers. So that's where all the story comes from. Is from that? R2-D2. R2-D2. 100 years after the whole Death Star 2 getting blown up and the Endor... When all his friends are dead and buried. He goes to the Wills and tells them the story. Whoa. I think that'd be a cool scene to see in the movie. It'd be hard to make it cinematic because it would just be like... For hours Imagine they could have stuck it at the beginning of episode one. It's like 100 years after the Battle of Yavin. And R2-D2 is kind of like rolling across this desolate planet and he reaches these weird ancient spirit people. And he's like, like, oh, little one, you have a story for us. And he plugs himself into their terminal. Oh, and he just, get, like, uploads it. So up, then I have to listen to it. We can just project, and then it goes into the movie. Yeah. That'd be cute, right? It'd be cool. It'd yeah. be cool. It, I don't think it'd be necessary. No, not at all. But it'd be but cool. Yeah. But he told the entire story to the to the Keeper of the Wills. Okay. Presumably know every language, because they can understand a, a little astromech droid beeping. Sure. Yeah. And that's why R2-D2 is like, you know, they follow him from the beginning to the end. He's like... Kind of the main character. Well, we're going to get into that in later episodes. But oh, yes. heck. But yes. So that's the legend side of things. It actually has become canon now. What, the, wills. the Wills? Yes. Where? So the Force, Force Awakens novelization, the very first chapter, actually opens with an excerpt from the Journal of the Wills. Oh. First comes the day, then comes the night. After the darkness shines through the light. The difference, they say, is made only right by resolving the gray, refined Jedi sight. Journal of the Wills, 7 477. That's a cool poem. Um, I don't know what it means, but... I don't either. It's <laughs> the Journal of the Wills. Right. So then, by doing so, by actually putting out the novelization, because that's considered to be canon, the Wills became part of the canon Star Wars timeline. So now they're official. And Rogue One went even further with that. They introduced Jeddah. Remember this holy city where, like, yes. the, the temple is? Yes. Uh, the Temple of Kyber and its protectors, the Guardians of the Wills. Oh, right. Part of the Church of the Force. And Chirrut and Baze are members. 
Oh, cool. Yeah. And the, kind of another I, mention here, the, the idea of kyber crystals, because that's the, the temple's two is kyber crystals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes all the way back to Lucas's 1975 synopsis of Star Wars. Wait, he had a synopsis in 75. He, he did many synopses. Many, many, many. Did yeah. he show them all to Jeffrey? And Jeffrey was like, God, if you don't stop. Yeah, we're gonna, I'll talk about those in next uh, next week. But yeah, the kyber crystals, That's they, they, not only did they pull wills, they pulled from another synopsis from an earlier draft as well. And the kyber crystals of we're kind of a major MacGuffin in that synopsis. Let someone use the Force. Yeah. And if you've ever read the 1978 Legends novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. They're I have it. I major, actually have two copies of it because Amazon messed up. They're but... a major MacGuffin in that story. Oh. I'm going to need to read that. That's going to have to be an episode. So I thought it was interesting. They, not only did they make kyber crystals, but they made the wills a thing. Wow. And that's canon. A recent, this is not canon, but there's a recent anthology of short stories called From a Certain Point of View. They're not really canon. They're kind of for fun. But they had one called Wills which is about two Wills arguing about how they should write down this story. Can Wills argue? Like, do they have physical... Fo- what are they? Are they ghosts? What the book did not describe them, but I, I have a few paragraphs from the Wikipedia article about them. I think we're kind of funny. I don't... I, it's not strictly canon. It's pretty meta and silly, but... Okay. An unidentified Will opens with the exposition, A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. A second Will criticizes his choice of the words far away. The first Will asserts his authority and points out that the rest of the Wills appointed him to write the journal. The second Will then criticizes the vague time frame and passive tone of the line, It is a period of civil war. The first Will expresses exasperation that his companion is going to nitpick every sentence and opines that mentioning the exact time of day sounds stupid. It does! Yeah, right? I'm with that first Will, it does! It sounds stupid! When the first Will writes about rebel starships winning their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire, the second Will asks why he's skipping over the Galactic Republic and the Clone Wars. When the second will suggests adding in Anakin and Padme, the first will responds that he could make some mysterious references to them later. The second will then suggests adding in Darth Maul, Captain Rex, Ahsoka Tano, Asajj Ventress, Cad Bane, Savage Press, Jar Jar Binks, and the Mandalorians. Oh, well, no, the judge, that was a bad suggestion. The first will contests that he could always go back and tell those stories later. Oh, yuck, yuck, yuck. His companion protests that it's chronologically out of order, but the first will counters that the audience will figure things out on their own. When the second will suggests that he could do better, the first will tells him to go write his own journal and leave him alone. The second will then goes and writes an episode about how Chewbacca's family celebrates Life Day. Oh, God. See, that second will, has, he has bad taste. Yeah. He has terrible taste. Left in peace, the first he, will. He's the one that wrote about Itchy. That was not a good. Then the first will is left to his own devices and writes the first opening crawl of episode four. Stupid story. But I thought, I think it was kind of cute and funny. It's cute. I mean, it's, it's goofy, but it's cute. It's pretty meta. Yeah. Well, yuck, 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 yuck. So yeah, that's where I'm going to end our, our Wills discussion today. Next week, I'm going to go into the first actual script. Cool. A rough draft. Was it good? The Star Wars. Was it good? You'll have to find out. I'm, I bet it's not that good. Well, <laughs> you'll find out. Awesome. Excellent. Well, yeah. thanks for informing me, Ryan. And thanks for informing me. Hey. This has been very interesting about the respective medias that we've been covering on the show. Yeah, I like to think so. You know what else is interesting? What's that? Websites. Do you like websites? Are we sponsored by Squarespace, Joanne? What are we doing? I love websites, and that's why we have one. Okay. She's about to dive into a Squarespace app, but she's, she dove out. They're not paying us she enough. She zagged. Because zero dollars is not enough. Zero dollars is not enough. <laughs> so, um, www.whatslightsabersprecious.com. Yeah. We have all our episodes available for streaming, and we also have some little bonus artwork by Mr. Ryan, who, if you guys didn't know, is a professional artist. So, you, you know, you. it's like real good. And uh, we also have an email. You know what else I like besides websites? Emails. Where you- Sponsored by MailChimp or something? We're sponsored just by the, the abstract concept of email. So be a MailChimp and email us at whatslightsabersprecious at gmail.com. It's a good, good, good email address to send things to. 
Also, if you're a madcap social media maven, then hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Just search What's Lifesavers Precious. Yeah. Rate us up on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and Stitcher. We do have ratings already, but the more you add, the easier it is for people to find the show. And then you can find them and be friends with them. Are my, the rewards we're offering just not sick enough? They don't. People do not want their own custom gonk song. How people about do not want a, a, a producer Gollum message? A thousand dollars. Do you want that? We already tried that last week with the doll hairs thing. No, I'm offering actual dollars. No one wanted my doll hairs. Nobody wanted your doll hairs, No one Ryan. fell for my doll hairs. Plot. Nobody fell for that. No. Maybe because you explained it to me. I tried to cut it out, but it was in the episode. <laughs> oh, Producer oops. Gollum put it back in. Gollum! <laughs> He's laughing. But please just rate us anyway. Rate us anyway. Do it tell, for free. If you don't want to rate us, then tell a friend who's maybe a huge nerd. That's what nerds do anyway. They're all like, hey, listen to this podcast. Hey, listen to... This podcast. I know. Joanna will tell you. I'm always giving her a new podcast thing to listen to every day. And so, be like me, be obnoxious, and spread the love. Here so we go. What do you got from our for our last last fact of the day here? So, in the original draft, Gollum was not Smeagol, he was Daigle. Okay. Who you may remember is actually his friend that he murders in the finished draft. His buddy. It was originally spelled D I G O L. And that is an old English word meaning secret or hidden. Ooh, diggle. Yes, crouching tiger hidden diggle. Diggle. <laughs> diggle. Also, Mount Doom was called Fiery Mountain. That was and good. the cracks of Doom were called Cracks of Earth. That was good. That was good. That was good. You really had to boil that. Cracks of Doom. Ooh, cracks of Earth. Like, uh, I've seen those already every I day. I see those. I see those. The I sidewalk. S- yeah. I step on one, break my mama's back. Yeah. Every single day of my life. But my last, my last fact is that, you know, you ask what wills are. No one really knows, but there's a common misconception that a will is what Yoda species is. But that is wrong. Okay, because I Because <laughs> one of the things that Lucas has always stood by, this is a deal breaker for him, is part of the lore bible of Star Wars is that Yoda's species will never be named. It's a weird hill to die on, It is but always okay. Yoda's species. Very weird hill to die so on. So if you thought a will was Yoda... You're wrong. I never thought that in the first place, and I didn't realize other people did, but yeah, don't think that. Stop thinking it. Because no. it's dumb. I know some of you are still thinking it. I said, stop. We can read your minds. Stop it. Okay, well, let's go climb the fiery mountain and see some cracks of earth. All right, bye all. Bye. Bye.